So we're in this series on Revelation, the seven churches, and uh, we're at now the fourth church, the church of Thyatira. And I want to set this up by telling you something. How many of you are educators in the room? Educators like work as teachers or administrators in schools? Some of you, you're afraid to raise your hands? Okay. Uh, yeah, like, no, we're not raising our hands. We do that to kids in class. Um, the education world has taught us this. You ready? Repetition leads to retention. I want you to say that with me. Ready on three. One, two, three. Repetition leads to retention. What leads to retention? And the more we repeat ourselves, the more we will retain something. In fact, you know this, right? This is why you often tell your kids over and over and over and over and over again to clean their rooms. It doesn't work, but you try. The more you repeat something, the more someone will retain it. It'll stick in their head. So if you really want to retain something, you just keep repeating it over and over and over again. This is why we repeat things, so that we will retain things. Do you get it yet? (laughs) In fact, um, the more often something is repeated, the more likely it is to stick in the head. Many cultures before ours knew this. Uh, The Hebrew people were excellent at it. In fact, if you were to go back and read Deuteronomy 6, I don't have this on the screen, but there God tells the Hebrew people, I want you to tell these stories of the things that I am doing and about to do in your midst. Tell these stories to your kids when you're sitting at the dinner table, when you're lying down, and when you're on the road. In other words, every time there's a free minute and conversation is normal, you repeat the story. What will happen if you do that? It will stick in their minds. Oral traditions are the way that the scriptures were passed down from years to years to years. This is powerful, though it's not today's sermon, because this is how Daniel and his cohorts, when they're in the exile in Babylon, they can actually rewrite the Hebrew Old Testament in Greek because the vast majority of it was passed down to them. And it's amazing how accurate those two things are when overlapped and compared to each other. This is hard for a lot of us to grasp because we have lived in one of the first cultures in the history of the world, first generations, I should say, in the history of the world, really last maybe 100 years, I don't know, I didn't count it, where the majority of our people can read and write. It's not everybody, it's definitely not everybody in the world, but that hasn't been true for thousands of years of history. There were always people who could read or write, but they weren't the majority. In fact, some scholars have estimated that 94 to 96% of the New Testament culture could not read or write. It's huge. Because the way then that they were able to get people to memorize stories is to repeat them and to repeat phrases. And in addition to that, they went and created literary forms, is what we call it, various kind of models and methods of repetition to help people remember things. And we see this, by the way, especially in the Old Testament, but throughout the New Testament as well. Now, what I want to do is teach you about one of these, and this one is called chiasm, chiasm. Or chiasm. It's based off the Greek letter chi or chi. Maybe you want to say it could be chiasm, but anyway, the whole point is it's it's got this inverted form and it's repetitive. Now, what I want to do is show you the form, and you'll be going, "What?" Everybody I've explained this to is very confused when I start. So stick with me. Don't read ahead in the notes. It's, this is all in the outline. Don't read ahead. Stick with me so we can be together, and I'll try to do my best to make it clear. Okay. So here's what chiasm would look like. I'm going to show you this first structure here. So, in a chiastic form, I'll show you a verse or a passage, and what will happen is there'll be a point A, and then there'll be a point B, and then there'll be a B2, and then there'll be an A2. You would compare A1 to A2 and B1 to B2. And I know you're already going, I have no idea what this means, but he told me to hang on. All right. Now, let me show you a verse and then show you its chiastic structure. So, here's a verse, Mark chapter 2, verse 27. It says this. 
Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Do you hear how it's repetitive? You're almost like, Jesus, didn't you just say that twice? Yes. Now, let me show it to you in its chiastic structure. This is what Jesus is really doing. You just didn't notice that he was doing it. So here we go, Mark 2 in the chiastic structure. So we have the Sabbath, A1, was made to meet the needs of people, B2, not people to meet the requirements, A2, of the Sabbath. Does that make more sense now? You may not get why I'm telling you, but at least you're starting to see chiasm. And some of you, your eyes are already in your head. I could see it. You're yawning, you're falling asleep. This is huge for where we're going today in Revelation. Chiasm has many, many forms. In fact, it can be used as verses, it can be used as chapters. Some have said the entire book of Revelation is a chiastic structure, meaning if you were to lay it out, chapter 1 would compare to chapter 21, chapter 2 to 20, and so on and so on. Some aren't that specific. It's chapter to chapter. Some say it's more like theme to theme. There may be some validity to that. I'm not sure. But I do believe there is chiasm in Revelation 2 and 3, and I want to show it to you in just a minute. Before I show it to you, let me just show you this structure. Now, I showed you an even number chiastic structure. I showed you a four-point chiastic structure. The middle is the focus, and what that means is this. The middle is the meat. It doesn't mean that the other part is important. It just means that the middle is where you find your meat. And when you get to a longer chiastic structure, there are many psalms that are laid out chiastic structure. If you go read a psalm and you're like, why does David always end where he began? It's because he's being repetitive. He's using a chiasm. And the middle of that psalm then is what David's really trying to tell you. It's the focus of what he's trying to say. Now, let me show you this. In a seven-point chiastic structure, it would look like this. A1, B1, C1, D1, C2, B2, A2. Notice there isn't really a D2. There could be. There could be two D points there in the middle. But the whole point is, notice that it looks like an arrow. And there's like a focal point. And the tip there, the middle, is the point. So you compare A to A and B to B and C to C, and then you have D. Now, if you aren't totally lost, let me show you this in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The seven churches. Some of these we haven't covered yet, so you have to trust me on what I'm saying, and you'll have to look it up later. Here we go. So if you compare A1 Ephesus to A2 Laodicea, the first church and the seventh church. The first church, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus that they are condemned for losing their first love, and if they do not repent, he will remove their lampstand, their church. If you go down to Laodicea, we haven't covered them yet, but they are condemned for losing sight of what is important. Jesus tells them to repent, or he will literally spit them out of his mouth, meaning they will be removed from his presence. Do you see how the two compare and contrast? It becomes even clearer when we go to the next one. Look at B1 and B2. Smyrna and Philadelphia. I've already preached on both of these. Both of them are commended for their faithfulness. Neither one is given a call to repentance. They are practically identical in that regard. Now go to the third one, C1 and C2. Pergamum, which we talked about last week, I'll recap real quick. They have fallen away because of false teachers. Jesus tells them, repent, or he will come suddenly, and he will fight against those false teachers and those who are following them. To those who are victorious will be given a new name. We get down to Sardis, which is next week, and Jesus says to them, you have fallen away. They need to wake up and stop faking their faith, or Jesus will return suddenly and to those who do repent their names will never be erased from the book of life so you've got do you see the comparisons that leads us to this d1 
Thyatira. Why is it the fourth church with really nothing specifically to compare it to? And for that, you have to wait till the end of the sermon to find out. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father God, Lord, we know that information doesn't change us. Only your Holy Spirit can do that. So God, would you come and be in this place and move in our hearts, Lord, as I deliver information, Father, may it lead us to transformation. Convict us deep in our souls about who we are and who you're calling us to be, God, that we might walk in your truth and in your grace. God, I pray by the end of today, um, Lord, that there isn't a heart in this place that isn't soft and moldable for you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. We're looking at Thyatira, and I have a typo in my notes already, so it's up there. Uh, there are seven letters to the churches, not three, and this one is the longest of them, and it's not really even close. However, I'll make it go quickly as much as I can. Revelation 2, 18. Write this, to the, write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. For those of you visiting, maybe checking out Kingsway, you haven't been online, you haven't been following along, that's fine. Let me just say this real quick. If you were to go back to Revelation 1, we started there uh, five weeks ago or so. If you go back to Revelation 1, what you will find is that there's a description of Jesus to John the Apostle when he writes it down. But then of that description, there are different pieces that are relevant for each of these seven churches. Here now we find the relevance for this church here in uh, Thyatira. And it's the flaming eyes and it's the feet of bronze. Now, the question is, why is that relevant for them? Well, Thyatira isn't overly excavated. I could show you pictures. They're kind of boring. There's really pretty much only one picture from different angles. There's not a lot of stuff because there's a town there still, and the town is built on top of most of the stuff that would have been existent 2,000 years ago. However, we have found a lot of little things from our excavations, like there are a ton of coins, a ton of coins that we have found from Thyatira. And there's still a lot that we know about the culture. For instance, one of the things we know about Thyatira is that it was full of guilds. If you don't know what a guild is, it's kind of like a gathering of craftsmen who are good at a specific thing. They might be good at working with metal or they might be good at colors or whatever. There have been tons and tons and tons of um, guilds, and I'll go through some of those in a minute, found in Thyatira. I'll just go ahead and go through the list now. Some of them, by the way, we found inscriptions in Thyatira. Here's just some of the ones we know. Wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronzesmiths. There's just a few of them. So this particular culture is not like some of the others. They don't have the massive structures that we know of and the big theaters and the libraries and the other things we've talked about. What they have is kind of a blue collar, hands-on, get your hands dirty, and that's how you make your living. That's important to understanding the city. Just to give you some context, uh, Paul actually comes in contact with a person from Thyatira. We see this in Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, verse 13, here's that story. Uh, God is revealed at the beginning of Acts 16 for Paul and Silas to take the gospel to Macedonia. That's an area, and he's now doing that in the area known as Philippi. And here we go, Acts 16, 13. On the Sabbath, this is we, Paul and Silas, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. We sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized and she asked us to be her guests. 
If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. I could preach the snot out of that text all day long, man. I don't have time, but I do want to point out a few things. Number one, look at Paul's boldness. Paul grabs his buddy that he's going to preach the gospel with. They go right outside the city, and they just go. They say they have a plan. Let's just go to the place where we think people might be praying. So they go, and they find somebody there, and they just start talking to her. And they just trust that the God who is sovereign is going to be opening their heart. See, we as Christians have lost this in a lot of ways. We're timid, we're afraid, we're afraid to speak up, we're afraid we won't fit in, we're afraid we'll be made fun of, we're afraid they won't accept, we're afraid we won't know the answer, so we just keep our mouths shut. Meanwhile, God may have been moving a person to a perfect place in time to meet you and has already prepared their heart to hear from you, and you keep your mouth shut. And Paul here, he's bold, and he meets Lydia, and she gives her life to Jesus, and she makes purple cloth, which may not sound like a big deal when you're reading through the book of Acts, but then you get to Revelation on Thyatira, and you go, oh, that's because she's a part of a guild, which is relevant for this. There are a lot of coins found from Thyatira, and they tell us different things about the city. Some tell us about the different guilds. I want to show you two particular coins that don't focus on the guild, but focus on something else that I'll make a point of in a second. So here's the first coin I want to show you. This is a, a picture, obviously, of the actual coin. You can tell it's not a real coin. Hey, that was kind of cool with me walking around in the background. I like that. Anyway, in this picture, the person on the right shaking who's got a battle axe in their arm, that is the Greco-Roman god of Apollo. The person whose hand he's shaking would be the emperor. You may remember, if you've been here, if you've been listening online, I've been talking about emperor worship that was very real in that day. And here is Apollo shaking the hands with the emperor. In other words, heaven meets earth. Hmm. Satan's always trying to find a way to twist the story, isn't he? And he's got this battle axe, and they're shaking over the flame of the Olympic flame, so to speak. And so this is a way, really, of saying, hey, the Olympic Games are a good thing, and Thyatira is a thriving city. I'll get a little bit more to that in just a minute. But one thing I want to tell you about Apollo is Apollo is the Greco-Roman god of the sun. He has another name, and I can't pronounce it. It's like Timaeus or something. But he is the god of the sun. Hmm. He's also known as the god of poetry, light, and prophecy. Now, as you read Revelation and you keep this in mind, one of the things I want you to have in mind throughout Revelation is that God shames the false gods of this world. He shames Satan and his minions over and over and over again. And here we see this god, Apollo, and he had actually had a temple that was kind of the big god of the city. There were a lot of littler gods there. He's the main god of Thyatira. He's the god of the sun. Hang on to that for where we're going in a minute. He's the God of prophecy. Do you know in Revelation it tells us that all prophecy points to Jesus? Do you think that's an accident that you have these people who believe they're in a culture where they're taught that uh, Apollo is the God of prophecy, but then John comes in and says, no, Jesus is the real prophecy. He's the one it's really all about. This is Jesus slapping in the face these false gods of the other religions and saying, don't listen to them, listen to me. Now, let me show you another coin. Here's another coin. I want to show you this one just for a quick purpose. This is uh, Apollo now riding on his horse with his battle axe again. <clears throat> and the only reason I point this out is actually history tells us Apollo didn't have one horse. He had four horses. Anybody know anything else in Revelation? I don't want to make too much of that yet. We'll get to that more when we get there, but I just think it's extremely fascinating that he rode on four horses. Now, 
Let me just talk about these guilds for a second as it relates to Apollo and these other gods. Here's the bottom line. If you were in a guild, you, you had to basically worship the god of that guild. So each guild had a god attached to it. As a part of that, you had to make sacrifices and worship that god. You had to really bow down to it. And then there would be festivals and parties as a part of that whole thing going on. This became very complex for the Christians in that community. Because if you were in a blue-collar town, this isn't like an extremely wealthy town. You just got mommy and daddy's money to pass it down to you. If you're a part of that town, in order to make a living, you have to be in a guild. In order to be in a guild, you have to worship a god. In order to worship a god, you have to do the things that that guild does for that god. So you make sacrifices to that god, you eat the foods, this bit sacrifice to that god, and you engage in all kinds of revelry, so to speak, inappropriate, immoral activity as a part of worshiping that god. It was very difficult to be a Christian in Thyatira because it meant saying no to a lot of things that weren't bringing glory to God. I love this quote by William Hendrickson. He says this, The situation, therefore, was somewhat as follows. If you wish to get ahead in this world, you must belong to a guild. If you belong to a guild, your very membership implies you worship its God. You will be expected to attend the guild festivals and to eat food, part of which is offered to the tutelary deity and which you receive on your table as a gift from the God. And then, when the feast ends, and the real grossly immoral fun begins, you must not walk out unless you desire to become the object of ridicule and persecution. You know what this is like today, right? I do. I remember one time a... I was going through the season of growth in my life as a believer. I was young. You've heard me talk about the story. I've walked away from Jesus, but I was coming back, and I was starting to get my life focused. I was starting to walk away from the sins of my youth and trying to be more consistent with God, and I got invited to a party actually by some kids in my youth group. I got invited, but I thought, hey, it's kids in my youth group. It can't be that bad. At least that's how I rationalized and justified going because I knew kind of what was going to happen, and as everybody started drinking way too much, and as everybody started, it wasn't my friends hosting the party. We were just at their house. As everybody kind of got started getting liquor. Up. I remember sitting there going, I'm not going to drink. I've told my parents I wouldn't do this. I remember I'm just hanging out, but I remember trying to have logical conversations with half logical people. First of all, because they're teenagers. Second of all, because they had too much alcohol. Now, as we're hanging out at this party, I just remember everybody acting crazy. I mean, they're doing things they wouldn't normally do. They're, they're making out with people they would never even, you know, take on a date, let alone anything else. And I remember being the one half-sober guy at this party and thinking, this is a crossroads moment. If I want to fit in right now, I have to do some things that I don't know that I want to do or that I know that my God doesn't want me to do. I remember leaving the party and my friends being mad at me. They thought I was abandoning them and going, look, you need a ride, tell me, but I got to go. It was hard. That day, I lost some friends. That day, there were some kids in that, from that school. My friend went to a different school than me from that school. Um, they wouldn't come to youth group and talk to me. They'd come and catch the youth group, but they wouldn't have anything to do with me. They felt judged by me. I wasn't judging them. I just knew I couldn't stick around. <clears throat> this could play out in a lot of ways. It's around the water cooler, you know, on Monday morning, tomorrow. People are gathered around, and they're gossiping about somebody else at work, and you walk out of the conversation. This come up, guys, you know, you're talking about that person who's, tells those inappropriate jokes, and in your heart, you know it offends God, but you don't know what to do, so you laugh and you stay there. Come on now, you know. It's hard to be a believer sometimes when the culture around you says, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. Everybody's doing it. 
Except what if everybody's doing it? It's actually the worst thing for you, and it's offensive to God. Go back now to Revelation. 2.18. This is the message. I just want you to see the second part here. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. It's just an interesting thing, by the way. The most well-known, the biggest, most well-developed guild in Thyatira, you know what it was? The Bronze Guild. Hmm. It's as if Jesus is saying to this church in Thyatira, I know what's going on among you. I'm well aware of it. My feet are like pure bronze. Now, Think about this. If you're going to do anything with bronze, if you're going to clean out the dross to take out the impurities in the metal, and if you're going to shape it, what are you going to have to do? Have a lot of fire. What are Jesus' eyes like? Flames of fire. He is connecting with them in a very real and unique way. I understand what you're going through. But fire throughout the scriptures is used to purify. Fire throughout the scriptures is used to test. Fire throughout the scriptures is used to to take out the impurities even in us. We're told that God is a refining fire. We literally sing songs about being our refiner's fire and using that fire to test us and purify us. That's what this analogy of Jesus is saying. My eyes are refining fire. They will look and pierce and they will see through to what's really going on in your heart and in your life and they will clean out the dross and my feet are like polished bronze set firm on the ground. I know exactly what's going on among you and you could trust me more than those things in your culture because let's be honest for a minute when we don't take part in what the culture is doing we are afraid we'll be left out and if we're left out does that mean we won't get a raise and if we don't get a raise I mean we won't get a promotion will we be able to provide for our family and send our kids to college what about those nice vacations that car we just bought the house man I really want to fit in what about my friends I've been a friend of that person for a long time but I don't know that I can go where they're going anymore what do I do and what Jesus is saying is you go with me Every time, and I'll make good. Trust me. Revelation 2, 19. I know all the things you do, he says. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Okay, most of us probably don't know the story of Jezebel. Some of us who've grown up at the church probably do. Jezebel, if you named your daughter that, it's okay to take her to the court starting tomorrow and change her name. Trust me. She is known as one of the bad girls of the Bible and not in the good way. She's the bad way. Here's the story of Jezebel real quick. I'll show this to you. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. I'll read this to you, and then I'll tell you a little bit more of the story. Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. And he began to throw, sorry, he began to bow down, not throw down. He began to bow down and worship to Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the Lord, anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel. 
before him. That is not the reputation you want before God. Here's the deal, and here's why it's relevant to Thyatira. So Ahab is the king of Israel, but he's attracted to somebody he knows he has no business being with, and he marries her. And she does to him what every person who is not in a right relationship with God is going to eventually lead you into. She takes his heart and leads it towards these false gods. He leaves the God of Israel, and he begins to worship the false gods of the pagan nations. When it says it sets up an Asherah pole, I've talked about this in the past, an Asherah pole would be similar to a pole in a gentleman's club today. All kinds of, uh, of sacrifices were made around the pole, and then when the sacrifices were done, they would get into the immorality, and it was rampant, and it happened all over Israel as King Ahab and Jezebel set up poles all over Israel. Along with that, he began to worship Baal. That's the bad, false god of the Old Testament. By the way, very fascinating. We see Baal through many, many cultures and times and places because we can get rid of the human forms of the god by tearing down the idol, but Satan is behind it, and so he keeps popping up in different forms, in different cultures, in different places, at different times. And King Ahab has led Israel now away from the Lord because he married Jezebel. This is a fascinating story if you go read it later. As you see this battle come to a climax between Jezebel and uh, the prophet Elijah, go read it later. It adds a little bit of insight into what's going on in Revelation. But what happens now is we get to Thyatira, and what is happening is apparently there are false teachers among the church at Thyatira. And what they're saying is, hey, just go ahead and join a guild, and go ahead and while you're a part of the guild, just bow down to the God. It's not that big of a deal. By the way, grace abounds. I mean, where sin increases, grace increases all the more, right? Who cares? Just do it and just trust God will be with you. It doesn't matter what you do. And the more that they began to put out this lie, people started practicing it. And Jesus shows up and says, no. See, hyper-grace is just as heretical as hyper-legalism. Hyperlegalism says you have to have all your ducks in a row where God can't love you or God can't forgive you. Hypergrace is just is evil. Hypergrace says it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do. We are saved by grace through faith. That is absolutely true, but that was never intended to mean it doesn't matter who you are. When you come to faith in Jesus, you are accepting him not just as Savior, but also as Lord. This is why when we baptize, we talk about that. I'm accepting Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. A Lord, we don't have that language today, but this would be a king. And part of what you're saying is, I'm coming into your kingdom. And so as your kingdom, I'm trusting that you'll provide. I'm trusting that you'll protect. But I'm going to live under your rule, under your reign. That's what you're saying when you come to faith in Jesus. You're not just saying, sweet, I got my get out of hell free card, and it doesn't matter anymore. And this is huge. Because some in the church of Thyatira are playing games with God. And if you notice here, part of what he said to them is, verse 21, look at 221, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. In other words, it's time for me to act. Guys, this is a part of God we don't really want to talk about at all, ever. We could debate all day long whether this group of people ever really loved Jesus or not. And if we say they never really loved Jesus, then we could say they never were saved. And if they did love Jesus, that leaves us with hard questions about what does it mean for all of us who say we love Jesus but aren't acting on what we say we believe. Here's all I know is Jesus is giving the most gracious thing that he can give to this group of people represented by Jezebel. He's giving them one last chance. And failure to turn now 
will have consequences. And I sometimes wonder to myself, how many last chances has Jesus given me? Does there ever come a point where God's patience runs out? Well, I know this. If today, today you hear the voice of God and you turn to him and seek forgiveness, he will forgive you. He will forgive you. But if you harden your heart and you move on, one day you're going to come to your last breath. And if you just think grace is going to cover it, it's no big deal. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Let's take a look at what Revelation says. Verse 22, this is not what you want to hear from Jesus. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. And those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Now, he's building a case here that we're going to get to in a minute. He's saying to those who are faithful and walk in a right relationship with me, I'm going to give you what you deserve. It's going to be great. But for those who continue to harden their heart and not walk with me, it's going to be bad news. What Jesus says, I'm going to throw her on a bed of suffering. What exactly does he mean? And I'm not 100% sure. But I'll say this. If you read the rest of Revelation, it's full of suffering. It's full of all kinds of pains and evils. And the whole point to the book of Revelation is, church, hang on in the midst of all the evil that's going to happen in this life. Because in the end, I'm going to build a kingdom. I'm going to establish myself as its king. And anybody who hangs on to the end will reign with me when we get there. So no matter how bad it gets here, hang on. But is there a specific suffering coming for Jezebel and those that she has led astray? If you go back and read Romans 1, Romans 1 is very kind of descriptive on how sexual immorality and idol worship have led the people of Rome away from knowing God. In fact, they've literally darkened their minds and their hearts because of idol worship and sexual immorality. They can no longer hear and understand and discern the voice of God. And so when you get to Romans 1, one of the things Paul says is, and they have suffered the consequences in their bodies. If you go back and look, uh, there's cities in ancient, uh, ancient kind of Rome, I guess, the Roman Empire, where uh, there are literally temples where people go and practice immorality in the temple with the temple prostitutes, and then they come down the mountain, and there are other temples. We have found, how do I do this appropriately, little clay um, private parts. They have constructed and have offered up as worship. And now what we believe, and this isn't just Christians, we, this is all historians, we believe that what happened is they went up there and picked up some diseases and they came down here and begged this other God to take it away. And here's what I know. Sitting here today, there will be many men and many women who have uh, made decisions related to sexual immorality that they wish they'd never made and they're suffering the consequences in their bodies. Some of it wasn't even their fault. It could have been rape or something else. The reality is um, all of these things are supposed to point us to God. The pain in this life will do one of two things for you. It'll either point you to God on your knees, crying out, saying, God, forgive me, heal me, restore me, renew me, or it'll make you angry and bitter and harden your heart at God, and it'll make you curse him. Those are pretty much your only two options. In the one place, we find mercy and grace in our time of need. In the other place, we find suffering. 
Friends, I say this because if uh, somebody in this room is relating all too well to the message to Thyatira, today's the day to repent, to stop. Before you have to face the one with flaming eyes. I love this passage in Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 16.9 The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And I can stop there. I got the rest of the verse up there, but I just love that part. The flaming eyes of the Lord are literally searching the earth to look for those who are committed to him to strengthen you. You and those who live in a city, maybe like Thyatira, in a home, and a family, in a school, and a job that feels like you're in the enemy's territory. The Lord is searching the earth. He's looking for you, and I want you to know he's strengthening you. Hold on. Don't believe the lies that it's okay. Hyper grace will cover it. Trust the grace of God to cover your sins when you fail, and then walk in a right relationship with him. Revelation 2, verse 24 but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan, actually. Before I go on, I just want to say, you know what that's called? Sarcasm. And if Jesus does it, I can too. All right. <laughs> he says in verse 24, I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Go read Revelation 19 and 20 later today. I don't have time to dig into it right now. Maybe I'll make a video later this week. This is amazing. What Jesus has just said is, look, for those of you who aren't buying into the lie of hyper grace, who are truly trying to follow after me, hang on because I will reward you. And here's the reward. You get to rule with me in the end. And if I'm the king of kings and the lord of lords, you know what your, your rule means? You get to reign as a king. You get to reign as a queen. This is not a statement, by the way, of crowns. You know, you've heard this before? Oh, I just got another jewel in my crown. Like, really? I mean, you know how heavy my crown would be? I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> so make sure you're with me. Guys, there's a point in Revelation, we'll look at this in a little bit, where people are literally casting down those very crowns. Literally, it's the word diadem. They're taking off their crowns because when they finally see the face of Jesus, they look at him and they go, there is nothing in this world that's greater than that. They look at him and they say, my goodness, I was actually willing to trade the power, the might, and the majesty of heaven for these silly little things of earth, whatever their names are. I was literally willing to give that up for this and on that day, there's going to be great sorrow for some who look and say, oh my, I can't believe I was willing to trade that for this. And I don't want that for you. And Jesus is now praising this group who says they're gonna, they've not given in to those things. They're going to hang on. They're going to endure. They're going to seek after him. This week I had a phone call from a, a sweet lady in our church, and she's had a hard road. She's made some bad decisions, and those decisions have had consequences. Beyond that, life has been hard to her. And she's telling me her story. You would weep if I were to share it with you. And at the end of this conversation, she's overwhelmed with guilt overwhelmed. She says, Matt, I, I try to repent. I try to walk in faith, but sometimes I just mess up. And I said, would you just take a deep breath? God loves you. Would you allow the grace of Jesus Christ to be all that it was intended to be? Just don't make it more than it was intended to be. The grace of Jesus Christ is there to cover all of your sin, all of your mistakes, 
Just do your best to walk in a right relationship with him, trusting his grace to fuel you, to cover you like a blanket, keeping you warm on a cold winter night. None of us are perfect. None of us. The reason Jesus says this to this church in Thyatira is because some of them have let the enemy trick them. You remember back in the garden? Remember Satan? First of all, Eve's walking around the tree. What's she doing near the tree she's supposed to have nothing to do with? But she gets close enough to the tree, and Satan starts to trick her and says, Is it true? Is it true that you're not allowed to eat of any of these trees? That's not what God said. She knows that, but she starts to argue with the enemy. And this is how Satan will get you. He'll plant a little lie, just a little trick, just to try to trip you up just a little bit. You'll make a commitment in your heart. Some of you sitting here right now, you already are hearing the Holy Spirit, and you can't wait to get to a decision point today because you can't wait to stand up and say, I'm done with it, God. I don't want to stand on the last day and hear that you're against me. I'm walking away forever, and I believe you, but I also know the enemy will lie to you. And within the next week, he's going to start those little whispers. Did, did you really mean, did God really mean, he's going to look for that little door to sneak in, to creep up, to get you to turn away from God again, and you'll walk down that road if you're not careful. So what do we do? We walk in grace and in truth. We trust our God to reveal our sins to us, and when he does, we fall on our face before him, and we say, I am an unworthy sinner. Would you forgive me? And every time, every time he picks us up, and he says, I love you. Now go and sin no more. And guess what? If it's a week or a month or a year down the road and you slip up again, do you know what he says? I love you. Now go and sin no more. The question for all of us is, are we going to walk in a right relationship with Jesus or abuse his grace? Let's close out Revelation. 28. They, those who endure to the end, will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. There are three people that I know of called the Morning Star. One of them is Domitian, the guy I told you was emperor at this time in Rome. Domitian's referred to as the Morning Star because he brought all this glory to Rome. You know the other person referred to as the Morning Star? Satan. Let's take a look. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to the earth, you, you who destroyed the nations of the world. By the way, if you have a King James or New King James, you'll notice here it says the word Lucifer. That's where we got Satan's name. It's not really Satan's name, by the way. It's just the Latin translation of that word. You, O oh Lucifer, son of the morning. That's basically what it's saying there. I don't care if you call Satan Lucifer, if you feel better about it. It's not his literal name. It's just the Latin word that's used there. Here's the whole point. If Domitian is called the son of the morning, and if, and if Satan is called the morning star, the son of the morning, then we get to Revelation 22, 16, and Jesus, it says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. What in the world is going on here? Who really is the morning star? Jesus is. That's the point. 
Satan wants to present himself as this morning star. All morning star meant in that day is it was a new day dawning. It was a symbol of power and might and something great that was happening. And Jesus is trumping it all at the very end of the book of Revelation, the last thing that is written. And he's saying, I am the true morning star. All these other things are false. All these other things are lies. All these other things are there to deceive you and to trip you up. I am the true bright morning star. Do not look at the things of this world. They're lying to you, but I won't. Let's answer the question that we originally asked. Why is Thyatira the focal point of the seven churches? I believe these two verses give us insight. Revelation 2.19, let's look at these again. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Verse 24b and 25, so I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. Here's the point. Why is Thyatira the focal point of the seven churches? Because you're looking at a church that's already being pressed. Some of them are already falling away. But what he's saying to them is you keep getting better. You keep improving. Your love keeps growing. Your faithfulness keeps growing. Your patience keeps growing. Your uh, humility keeps growing. Your, your, your morality keeps growing. You keep becoming more and more and more like Christ. So I'm not going to make any other request of you except for that you keep doing what you're doing. Here's the point to all of us. Some of us need to repent and get back in order here. Some of us need to get our lives refocused on Jesus Christ. But if we're walking in rightness with him, meaning we repent and walk in grace, and if we're continuing to prove in these things that Jesus has one word for you, keep going. Don't quit. Don't stop. Fix your eyes on the prize, Jesus Christ, at the end of it all. And don't turn away for anything else in this world that looks shiny and attractive and cool and fun and pleasant miserable, stay focused. And you need to ask yourself this question, am I today more like Jesus than I was a year ago? And if the answer is no, you need to stop doing something to start doing something else. If you're not growing in patience, if you're not growing in grace, if you're not growing in love, if you're not growing in honesty, if you're not growing, then there's something you've got to stop doing, repent and turn away from it, and focus your life on Jesus. And I'm asking you to do it today right now, and not wait. Can you imagine when the church at Thyatira got this letter all excited? Hey, guys, we got a new letter. We got a new letter from John. Let's read it. And the church gathers, and they start reading it. Oh. Uh, some of you are going to be on a bed of suffering. Some of you need to keep going. You think everybody in that church didn't know exactly who was on the bed of suffering? They knew. Friend, will you make today the moment you turn from whatever it is you need to turn from and let Jesus heal you through his grace? I want to pray that over us right now. And then we're, hang on, don't get all the Bible put away, rustling, and nobody else hears what I'm saying. Listen, real quick. We're going to sing two songs. And this is your chance to respond. And today's the day, man. If God's calling you, today's the day. Over here at my left, underneath this screen, you're right. We got some staff down there. They just want to talk to you about Jesus. You can always use the front of the stage if you want to pray. Look, you can kneel where you are. You don't have to tell me about it. But will you make today the day you don't go back? We have teenagers 
teenagers in this church leading the way on this because some of your kids aren't afraid to do this, but you are terrified because it'll mean looking at your spouse or your kids and saying, I'm not perfect, I've sinned. I'd rather do it here than do it there. Let me pray over you and then we'll sing. Let's stand. Oh God, I am... We have an enemy, the evil one. He wants to lie to us and trick us and deceive us. God, he wants us to slowly fade away from you because if he can lead us away from you, he can isolate us. He can own us. But we know that you are faithful and true. You will never quit on us. What you just did for the church at Thyatira, Lord, is you you just did the most unbelievable mercy by telling them the truth. And now, God, the choice sat in front of them. What will they do with what they heard? Here's my prayer, God, for the two groups we see in Thyatira. For those who are not in a right relationship with you, would they repent and turn to you right now? And if so, God, would they do that in a way that is obvious to you? And God, for those who are in a right relationship with you, they are walking in grace and in truth. Father, I pray a blessing over them. You ask nothing more of them except for that they keep on Oh, God, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you let us know which one is us and what we're to do with it. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.